Kia ora, and welcome to 15 Minute Futures, the podcast that explores the future in bite-sized, but with a Kiwi twist. It's great to have you with us. Today we'll be looking at genetic engineering and we'll ask the question, might gene editing one day offer us a powerful new way to control pests? And if so, what might be the risks associated with this? And to help us answer this question, today we're delighted to have on the show Professor Neil Gemmell. His research focuses on blending genomics with ecology, population, conservation, and evolutionary biology. Many thanks for joining us today, Professor, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. Kia ora. So there's a, a lot of hype in the media, which we've been following very closely around the potential of CRISPR and other gene editing technologies to cure diseases and create new species and even um, improve human DNA. How on earth do we tell how much of this is real and how much of this is actually pure fiction? That's a really good question. So actually, it's, and it's hard to disassociate what is real and what is unreal at, at, at some juncture. So technology is advancing quickly. The potential is really, really large, and people are using these tools in a myriad of ways to address questions from human health through to how we might modify food uh, so it's better for us or tastes better or keeps better through to how we might actually modify organisms in our environment to make them, let's say, for example, more resistant to disease, uh, or in the case of predator control, how we might actually uh, pass on a gene that those predators then pass on to their offspring that would make them more amiable to to decline. Uh, maybe they don't, maybe they're infertile, that sort of thing. So how do you get away from the, the hype? Well, the potential is enormous, but gene editing remains something that is, is most easily done if you're targeting one gene at a time, maybe up to 60, so about two years ago, people had uh, successfully edited 60 human genes in a cell line. The, the real hype, I think, is around things like we're going to make new species or we're going to de-extinct things, which is going to require thousands and thousands of edits of uh, DNA material to produce uh, these these new creatures or, if, it, if you like, bring these creatures back from the past. That's real hype stuff. The idea of doing a single edit to modify a single gene, let's say something that um, is involved with uh, susceptibility to a particular disease, that's feasible now for lots of different things. Or you could be doing an edit to um, change the way uh, mushrooms brown or apples brown, which will increase their um, shelf life and, and, their, and their desirability to us as consumers. So that stuff's already happening. Uh, and there's plenty of examples of things that can be done and things that could possibly be done in the future. Thanks, Professor. So it's not so much Jurassic Park, but maybe thinking a bit more about genetic engineering to manage pests, say from mosquitoes to rats, maybe even one day possums. What do you see the risks and opportunities uh, facing us, uh, particularly in relation to so-called gene drives? Okay, so gene drives are a really interesting example of edit, gene editing. So the Gene drives require gene editing to work, so you need to be able to cut and replace DNA, and that's effectively what gene editing does. Uh, a gene drive uses that cut and editing to make sure that it makes more and more copies of itself and the gene that it's carrying. So effectively, if you like, it's a way of cheating inheritance. So instead of having a chance, maybe 50-50, of passing on a particular copy of a gene to your offspring, and the best example we've probably got of this is sex, so you know, if dad passes on a Y chromosome, he has a son. If dad passes on his X chromosome, he has a daughter. But imagine a situation where you have a gene drive that means that, that father passes on the Y chromosome to every single one of 
his descendants. That's effectively what a gene drive's doing. It's pushing through a particular genetic variant at very high frequency, maybe 100%, maybe 90%. So that's very, very powerful technology to modify populations over time. And so people are already using this in insects mostly to modify, for example, mosquitoes, so that those mosquitoes only produce male offspring or they produce offspring that cannot be infected by the malaria parasite. So those sorts of experiments have already been done in a laboratory, uh, in fact, several laboratories around the world. And in fact, they're now gearing up to the point where they're doing what they call big cage trials. They're happening in Italy uh, with the view that if those cage trials are successful, they would take genetically modified mosquitoes and they would release them in uh, parts of Africa where malaria is common, and they would seek to use that tool to eradicate malaria from that area. Um, so that's where that's what we're up to. Now, now mammals, which is our problem, much, much harder because the generation times are so much slower. So you can get a fruit fly or a mosquito probably uh, from uh, egg to adulthood in a, in a few weeks, whereas with, with rodents, you're probably talking somewhere in the vicinity of three to four months at best, uh, and in the wild probably even slower. So that doesn't sound like a heck of a lot of difference, but it actually is. So it's, it's going to be at least 10 or 12 times slower probably to do the mouse experiment. They've just done the first gene drives with mice last year that seemed to be mostly successful, although they weren't perfect. Uh, so you're still looking at several years before people are able to replicate what's already been done in the insects. And then even more years before you get to the situation where you might actually start to think about using them in an environmental context. So, so do you see it as, as feasible that in our lifetimes we might see a situation where there are possums, rats, mice being effectively controlled through genetic editing? Depends how long we hope we will live, I guess. <laughs> but, but let's, let's uh, look, I think, I think within the next decade or two, those sorts of technologies will, will be a, amiable uh, to being used in an environmental context to control pest species that, that, that we don't want in our environment anymore. Uh, and probably in a very specific way and in a very controlled way so that we could reverse those effects if we wanted to. Uh, you know, if you, ha you only have to backcast where we were 20 years ago, and some of the technological developments that we now see were hard to forecast. This sort of technology is rel relatively uh, what we're talking about are, are incremental steps forward, really. Um, they're not trivial, but they're not um, the sorts of revolutionary change that we've already seen um, within our lifetimes. So thinking about our, our past experiments of introducing new animals into the environment, what can we learn and what could we do different? And I'm thinking about gorse and rabbits and weasels, et cetera. Yeah, so, yeah, we, we really, we've been really good at modifying our environment here in New Zealand uh, by introducing species that we consider to be um, inane or innocuous species. You know, some of the best and best things about, you know, at least from a Western European sort of concept, the best, best things about um, uh, the traditional homeland, if you like. And we brought them here uh, with the view that that would make the place better. And, of course, it's made it a heck of a lot worse. Based on that, the most important thing we can do is, is to proceed cautiously, to recognise that there may be unintended consequences from these actions, and to do it in a very controlled, 
fashion. So if you think about what we did in the past and some of these things that were failed experiments, so gorse was brought into Southland and it grew re- relatively stably there, sort of like it does in, in, in Scotland. And it's very pretty, you know, the hedges they have there. Um, but of course, you get it to, you know, places where it's warmer and it can grow much so much better and it becomes uncontrolled. Um, it becomes a really major problem. And similarly with rabbits, there were no real predators here. And so they exploded in terms of their population, and that was obvious. But then we introduced weasels, stoats, and parrots to control them, and foxes, but they didn't succeed. Um, and, and you know, we've created this entire ecosystem of, of damage, really, uh, damaging to our native flora and fauna, which we now, you know, it's taken uh, us a long time to recognize the intrinsic value of that as opposed to what is common in Europe and elsewhere. So we need to proceed cautiously, and I think everyone's thinking about that. Now, one of the things that's uh, valuable about conservation in New Zealand is that we, we have a lot of offshore islands and they actually are reasonably contained and you could make the argument that you could undertake experiments there and, and explore how these things proceed uh, using those tools. And then if you needed to, you could reverse it. You know? So, again, I think containment and control would be the, the fundamentals and doing it slowly and carefully and with uh, a, the informed uh, consent of the broader public, because um, that's important. You know, what's the point of doing the science if it isn't actually publicly acceptable? Well, that that's a really interesting point about the public. It seems like most of the stuff around GMOs was done fairly sensibly in, a, in the way that you're describing, but there was this massive public backlash about it. So how do you think we should be learning about that, uh, you know, with this new technology that we're, we're now starting to manipulate? How do we avoid that kind of public backlash happening again in this context, do you think? Yeah, that's a, it's a complex question, to be fair, because, um, I mean, what became clear with GMOs is that it was not about data, it was about values. And that became very clear early on in the debate. And, and, and it was also by who was driving that debate. So Monsanto were one of the main companies that was driving that discussion. And a lot of people asked the question, well, what's in it for them? And there was a lot in it for them. And so the self-interest uh, was palpable, and I think that made a lot of people very concerned. We're talking about something here which is broadly, we would hope, for the public good. Uh, and so I think the lessons there are to first explain why we might want to use this technology and in what context. And I think um, there will be a different set of concerns that will surround us as opposed to, say, the modification of food or the modification of ourselves. If, if we value our natural environment and we realize that we have few and fewer and fewer options to actually reverse the tide of extinction that we're seeing, maybe this will be uh, a palpable or palatable, sorry, uh, a way to control malian pests as opposed to, for example, using blanket control of poisons, which does work. But of course, that causes people some level of concern also. So, you know, it's a, I think there's a nuanced argument here. Uh, and I'll be interested to see where that discussion goes. Professor, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future in relation to genetic engineering and why? And maybe the second bit to that, what are the two or three big things that it's going to take to seize the benefits while managing the risk? Okay, uh, I'm optimistic. uh, And I'm optimistic because I think that there will be an increasing acceptance of these tools when the value they pose to us as individuals outweighs the perceived personal and societal risk. Let me explain that a little bit more. So let's take human health, for example. I think what we'll discover is that if you are proposed by a doctor with a prospect of dying or not dying and 
that not dying requires the use of a GMO, I think many of us would probably choose to not die. So we'll use GMOs in that context. Uh, likewise, with our children, I think we'd do the same thing. So I think there is where we're likely to see the, late, the greatest level of gains. Is it will be opportunities to use this technology to treat what were previously untreatable diseases, like irritable blindness, for example. Then I think the slope becomes increasingly steep. So we might decide the gain in the environment that there might be opportunities to use these tools where there are no other alternative choices, or if there are alternative choices, they're so expensive as to not be uh, worth doing. Um, so here's an here's an example. We let's say let's take kakapo. So kakapo are hugely endangered. There's maybe 150 to 200 of them, depending on how the breeding season's gone this this summer, um, and they're dying now uh, from aspergillosis, uh, which is a bacteria uh, a fungal infection, and that's really concerning. And is it because they don't have resistance to aspergillosis? And how might we modify things so that they could uh, be resistant to that? Could we use genetic modification to do that? Would that be acceptable? Would that stop the birds from dying? If it does, then that might be something people would be willing to consider in the future. Yeah. And then for food, that's much more complicated because we live in a society where um, we have no real food source shortage or malnutrition and those sorts of issues are not really part of our day to day. But in other parts of the world, it really is, and it's life and death. So again, maybe they want to use those tools and this technology to uh, modify their food stuff. And likewise, we could also conceptually use these tools in situations where it would reduce animal suffering and uh, address welfare issues. So a really good example there is removing horns from cows, uh, dairy cows in particular. Uh, so you can do that with a single base edit. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. Thanks, Professor. We've certainly learned a lot in a very short space of time today. Uh, and so, look, a big thank you from Steve and I for coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks. Uh, I've certainly learned a heck of a lot. And that's pretty much our 15 minutes up for today. We'd like to finish by thanking our sponsors, anticipate.co.nz, the company that helps you look ahead, plan ahead, and get ahead, and to Springload for digital products that catapult your business to the next level. Hey, Cornetta. Hey,